Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, good evening, and uh, thank you for attending this uh, question session this evening about Dr. Oslin's new book, Asia's New Geopolitics, Essays on Reshaping the Indo-Pacific. Uh, for those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. They have five master's de degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. They also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition. You can also audit a course at uh, considerably less cost. If you're interested in learning more about them, please visit iwp.edu. This event is part of the China Lecture Series at IWP. This evening, we will be hearing from Dr. Michael Oslin. Dr. Michael Oslin is a historian and a geopolitical analyst, the inaugural Payson J. Treat Distinguished Research Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, and is also a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. The best-selling author of four nonfiction books, he is a longtime contributor to the Wall Street Journal, and his writing appears in The Atlantic, Foreign Affairs, Politico, The National Review, uh, and The National Review, among other leading publications. Formerly an associate professor of history at Yale, he was a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader and a Fulbright Scholar, among many other awards. He appears frequently in the US and foreign media and is the vice chairman of the Wilton Park USA Foundation. So thanks again for joining us this evening, Dr. Oslin. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure. Um, so your book has eight chapters in it, which discuss various topics um, about Asia from China to the North Korean nuclear problem set to Japanese history to women's rights in India. And so that's a big, a lot of different topics we could tackle tonight. But I want to start with um, probably the, the biggest topic you talk about the most, and that's China. So in your second chapter, entitled New China Rules, you talk about the actions China is taking, such as uh, their espionage actions, their influence campaigns, uh, various econo international economic pressures. And you wrote, China increasingly expects the world to bend to its wishes, and it has adopted a set of behaviors to ensure it gets the outcomes it wants. These new rules are the sources of Chinese behavior and pose the greatest strategic challenge of the next generation." End quote. So you can feel free to discuss anything you want in this chapter, but I'd really like you to kind of set up some sort of primer about what those new rules are. And I'm most interested in asking, what can we expect the new incoming Biden administration uh, regarding this strategic challenge we're gonna be facing? Well, the rules are, uh, uh, as I described them, are a set of both actions, policies, and expectations on the part uh, of the, the Communist Party of China, the, the, the you know the controllers of uh, the People's Republic of China. And I think you know whenever we talk about China, we should be making fairly clear that we're talking about the party or we're talking about the party state, and not forget that at its core, uh, both the core of, of how it's organized, but the core of its identity is that it is a Leninist party state. Uh, and so Leninist party states act in particular ways 
uh, that put them at odds, not only with their own populations, but with the world around them. They are um, revolutionary states, they are aggressive states, uh, they are obviously autocratic, if not uh, totalitarian states. And all of this is, is, is what defines the CCP today. Now we've had 40 years uh, since normalization of relations in 1979 of trying to convince ourselves that the PRC is not what it is um, and that it was going to turn into something different from what it was under Mao Zedong. And so we, uh, in the United States, we created our own set of policies to what you might call the China bet uh, to bring it into the world system, uh, to uh, bring it out of, help it bring itself out of the madness of the Mao years, uh, once Mao had died in 1976. Um, no one at, at the time in, in the late, in the 1970s or 80s could really imagine the China of today or China becoming what it has today. Now, you know, we have a centuries long tradition of, of hoping that China will become, you know, going back to Marco Polo, of hoping that China will become uh, the great market for the West and, and, and you know, the, the sort of leading nation uh, in the world. Um, but, but no one, I think, could have anticipated the China that we got. The problem is that half of our bet was fulfilled. It became powerful. It became, uh, you know, by, by some measures, the largest economy on earth or certainly uh, an economy central to uh, the global trading system and what we call globalization. Um, a country that, that not only we, but everyone else traded with, that we exchanged students with, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, it also became a country uh, that used this wealth from entering into the world system to create an even stronger authoritarian system at home. Now, initially, we thought that might not be the case in the 1970s and 80s, uh, the reform period of Deng Xiaoping leading into the 1990s. We probably should have figured it out after 1989 and, and the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre, but we still convinced ourselves that China was going to change, that it was going to not only, first of all, begin acting like other states around the world, meaning it wouldn't support revolutionary movements, it wouldn't threaten its neighbors and take away territory, um, so on and so forth, um, but that it would ultimately, to some degree, in some way, liberalize at home. And by the second decade of the 21st century, we began to realize that that bet was misplaced. And instead, we had a China whose sources of behavior were coming from its Leninist party background, its Leninist state background, its ideology, which they took very seriously, even if we didn't take it very seriously. And a, um, if you can put it this way, almost a Pavlovian learning curve response to the fact that the West never attempted to change its, its trajectory seriously when it would uh, act in predatory ways or aggressive ways or threatening ways. And instead, it, it learned that it could get away with, with many things that, that we would not have uh, allowed other states to get away with, or at least we would have, would have started changing our policy. And all of this, I think, ultimately coalesced into what I call the new China rules. And they, they sort of span the, um, the, the, the playing board from uh, actions such as uh, discrete actions of espionage, rampant espionage, rampant theft of intellectual property rights, rampant uh, attempts to, um, uh, to intimidate neighbors, uh, as well as um, conduct uh, influence and propaganda campaigns around the world, to a sort of, if you might call it a more, um, almost a, uh, uh, um, how would you call it, almost a psychological approach of demanding that countries around the world essentially adopt the Chinese, and again, by this I mean the party's view of the world, yeah. self-censor, uh, accept the determinations of the party of, of 
for example, which territory is Chinese or not, such as Taiwan or Tibet and the like, um, to apologize, being browbeaten and intimidated into apologizing for supposedly offending the, the Chinese people and the like, so that we would tame ourselves and we would change our own behaviors in order to make easier the policies that the Communist Party wanted to um, push around the world. And unfortunately, they've been very successful at that. I would say successful until the Trump administration, I think uh, a Clinton administration back in 2016 would have, uh, would have done some of what Trump did. It, it's, it's unclear as to how far, but basically there was a great fusion by uh, the 2016 election on the left and the right, recognizing that the, the reality of the China we got after 40 years of engagement was not the China that we wanted to get. Uh, so whether it was about free trade, it was about intellectual property rights, it was about espionage, it was about security issues, freedom of navigation, everyone had started to come together to recognize that these new China rules, which essentially uh, expected that China could act in any way that it wanted without any type of Western response, needed to be responded to. And so the great question, of course, is where does the Biden administration go with this? That, that, that is the question. Um, and I think we'll be interested to see over the next few years how that how that pans out, if they keep kind of the pressure from the Trump administration or or look to something a little more uh, an engagement strategy instead of so much a confrontational one. Um, so in, in that light, I'd like to ask you kind of a, a, a bigger strategic picture, not from the US's view, but from China's view. Uh, over the past 30, 40 years, like you mentioned, they've seen tremendous growth as they've become a working partner on the global stage. And, but nonetheless, while that international order has been the one that's let them uh, kind of propel it to the, the current state they're at, they're looking to change it, alter it fundamentally, as you've mentioned. Uh, what, what is their, what it, and perhaps this is more CCP than, than China per se, but what is the CCP, C, CCP's goal in fundamentally altering that global order that has uh, led them to such success? Well, the main goal is survival. I think you know that's that's fairly commonly accepted. It's to survive uh, in a world which, you know, through the 1980s and 1990s, was seeing massive democratization through Europe and Asia, Africa, other other areas, and so they they felt the threat. Um, so, above all, it's to survive. But in order to do that, you have to make the world safe for Chinese authoritarianism. You you have to. I mean, in part, it's the DNA and the mindset of a Leninist party state. It cannot feel safe in a world in which there are democracies and other um, uh, other polities that, of course, allow their own people a say in in government self determination, um, but which also which also work together collectively and cooperatively. And Beijing, for for decades, you know, basically tried to convince us that it was acting cooperatively, when in many cases it it wasn't, uh, or it certainly was only operating. Um, cooperatively up to a certain stage where, you know, or a point where it was only in its self-interest and then it would, then it would back off. And so um, it, it's to make this world uh, a world that basically accepts the idea of autocracy, accepts the idea of a China uh, that can do what it wants, that it can um, uh, rampantly steal from its partners and not be punished for it and will just continue to, to beg them to have trade relations. Uh, a country that can take territory away from uh, other neighboring states like the Philippines, 
um, that can threaten the, the existence of a country like Taiwan. And yes, we should be considering it uh, an independent country um, uh, that can essentially set up a techno totalitarian, a digital totalitarian state uh, within a state, both, both in terms of the People's Republic proper, but also even more intensively in areas like Xinjiang and Tibet, uh, and then extend those, those um, uh, techno totalitarian practices to the rest uh, of China through um, ubiquitous uh, voice and facial recognition systems, DNA swabbing, social credit system, uh, and the like. Um, it, it is to in, ensure, in essence, that there is no threat of an alternative vision of social order, political order to the Communist Party. And that's one reason, of course, why Taiwan is so important by its very existence as a democratic Chinese state, uh, it, it threatens the, the legitimacy of, of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. So which is why the party uh, is doing everything it, it can in order to uh, isolate Taiwan, reduce its, its um, uh, reduce its international space, threaten it, uh, of course, with invasion for declaring independence, if you should ever do that, or even have a referendum uh, and the like. So the goal of the party is to survive, but in order to do that, it has to change the world. And unfortunately, we've helped it to do that. Uh, we've helped it by legitimizing uh, the Communist Party's uh, activities in the world. We've done it by legitimizing the role of the PRC in the world. And of course, there are benefits that the world and the consumers of the world have uh, derived from the modernization and the rise of China. Uh, but in, in most ways, it has been a, a largely a one-way street. Uh, and that's what we have to understand. We have to understand that the party takes ideology seriously. We, we think ideology really ended with the end of the Cold War, right? The end of history thesis. Uh, and you have to listen to what the party says. You have to listen to what Xi Jinping says. You have to read documents like the infamous now document number nine. Uh, you have to understand that the party sees itself at war or what it calls struggle with the rest of the world. And that as it has become stronger, it has not become more confident. It has, if anything, become more paranoid about losing what it has uh, built for itself. So we are in a long-term struggle uh, with the Communist Party. It, it sounds like this is the 1980s or 1960s or 50s to say that, but it's true. Um, we're in a long-term struggle from a, a sort of great, more traditional great power perspective with the People's Republic, which, which far more than the Soviet Union, of course, is a complete competitor, a competitor economically, a competitor politically, a competitor ideologically, a competitor in um, international institutions in a way that the Soviet Union um, was in some ways, but, but in many ways uh, always uh, was seen as outside of them. So um, that's what the party wants. That's the struggle we face with the party. Okay. Um, well, so, so in light of all those successes, and, um, and in light of the fact that the party, in, in a way, feels threatened by the, the democratic societies around the world, one of the things China's New Rules, the second chapter of the book, doesn't necessarily dive into is um, what shortcomings China and the CCP might be, be facing currently or in the future. Um, if me reading the New China Rules chapter, I felt uh, very pessimistic about US-China uh, relations in the next several years. However, your, your last book, The End of the Asian Century, kind of talks about a, a lot of those shortcomings, a lot of those pitfalls that, that China could stumble into. I'd like to know what you think some of those biggest ones are right now. 
Yeah, and that's exactly right. In that book, um, which came out in 2017, I talked about uh, not just China, again, it was all about Asia, but a heavy dose of China, about the weaknesses that we were ignoring. Uh, and those weaknesses have become manifest um, in, in the years since I did the research and wrote that book. Um, you know, we no longer uh, even think about China growing at 10% or 12% a year. It's down to below 5%. And that was even before uh, before the, the COVID pandemic that began in Wuhan, China. Um, it, it is a, a country in which there is enormous um, stresses, uh, both the, the illegitimacy of the party in many ways because of corruption, uh, because of its unwillingness to uh, extend uh, civil society. And in fact, under Xi Jinping has clamped down on civil society, turning backwards and inwards. It has, um, it has become more alienated uh, from the world. It has enormous problems, uh, economic problems, including um, uh, soon, well, even now, but will become more so a labor shortage because of the, the devastating one China policy, terrible income inequality. Uh, you know, look, states can live for a long time uh, with, with pretty strong income inequality. We, we do it here, uh, but it's a real problem in China where you have enormous wealth clustered in cities and particularly along the coast. And then uh, people who are still living uh, in, in, it's better obviously than Mao's time in the seventies, but um, still, uh, at levels that uh, are, are far, far below uh, what the middle classes and the intelligentsia have in China. Um, terrible environmental problems, horrific environmental problems that lead to hundreds of thousands of premature deaths every year from air pollution and water pollution. Um, real questions about uh, the legitimacy of uh, its, or, or the, the reality, if I can put it that way, of its... Um, it's vaunted uh, innovation and technological and R&D systems. And then there's a, there's a debate about this. I mean, there's a very strong debate with many people, uh, people like David Goldman, people like Eric Schmidt, believing that China is uh, moving very rapidly along the, uh, the developmental curve uh, and the R&D curve so that it is becoming not just a taker of technology, but a, but a creator of technology. Uh, and yet when you look at um, statistics of, of uh, fraudulent uh, research results, fraudulent research papers, um, the, the, the slowdown that's obviously happening with Huawei because of the Trump administration cutting its source of, or its access to uh, semi-computer chips, um, the fact that it has these massive, you know, sort of Soviet-style um, investment programs into AI and the like, um, but really it's been focused largely on uh, facial and voice technology, of course, for uh, in, uh, domestic security reasons. I mean, there's real questions as to how um, vibrant its, its technological um, bases and, and, and its, its ability to innovate, meaning is it still very dependent on the West, which is one reason, of course, that it rampantly steals uh, intellectual property and has been doing so for decades. I mean, we'll never know the true amount of um, uh, pilferage of intellectual property from the West, nor what type of China and Chinese economy we would have if it hadn't stolen all that intellectual property. So these are these are enormous weaknesses that it has. There's other weaknesses that have grown actually since I since I published that that book, The End of the Asian Century. And one of them, although I, I talk a little bit about it in the book, but it's really become more acute, is that under Xi Jinping, who is lauded in the press as you know this great strong leader, both the Chinese press as well as the world press, um, he's actually worsened China's relations with all of its neighbors. 
except maybe um, the Russians and the North Koreans, but everyone else with the Chinese, obviously with the Indians, with the Southeast Asians, with the United States, uh, with en enormously powerful nations still around the globe. He has, he has worsened relations because of the propaganda campaigns, because of um, aggressive actions in the South China Sea, because of the espionage and the IPR theft and the like. So that today, China's relations uh, around the world are much worse than they were uh, than when Xi Jinping came in. Now, the way to square that with the idea of the China rules is that you can have two things happening at the same time. You can have a country that is not resolving its fundamental weaknesses but yet is still stronger than almost any other nation on the globe, uh, except for the United States. Um, a nation that, while it has terrible relations uh, with neighbors, really India, Japan for, for most of the past decade, um, tensions with South Korea, uh, um, obviously tensions throughout Southeast Asia, those nations can still believe that they have no other choice but to work with China because of its importance economically. So you can have these two things actually happening at the same time. Uh, and and it's, it's part of a paradox about dealing with China, but what we shouldn't do is um, convince ourselves that it's 12 feet tall or that it is going to, uh, without any uh, doubt about it, dominate uh, the 21st century because it hasn't resolved so many of the internal problems that it has and it's created external problems as well. Okay. Uh, one last question on China before we we shift gears to some other chapters in the book. Um, it, you, you've, you've mentioned that economic espionage, that economic theft quite a bit in your past several answers. Um, and you also mentioned uh, back at the beginning that you felt the Trump administration did a pretty good job pressuring China economically, or at least better than previous administrations. So I, I'm curious, what do you think the U.S. should be doing or has it done enough to combat all this economic statecraft that China is pushing out? Well, it's, it's hard because for, again, for 40 years, we, um, we had one paradigm of, of what we wanted to do, what we thought would make sense, which was you know, integrate China into the global economy and, and then sort of everything would take care of itself. And, and um, we, we lost a lot of ground. We lost a lot of opportunities to influence its path, I think, when it was uh, weaker when it was a smaller nation, when it when it wasn't as influential and powerful as it is today. Uh, again, even with all of those those underlying problems that I mentioned, um, and the policy that the the Trump administration um, uh, instituted. Uh, first of all, I think it was more than just economics. It was it was about security. It was about politics. It was trying to counter the the propaganda and influence campaigns. It was to do its best to maintain a U.S. presence in the South China Sea, uh, be much more forward-leaning in terms of things like freedom of navigation operations uh, conducted by um, Pacific Fleet and the Seventh Fleet, um, work with work with allies. So in in the, the last days here, uh, revitalizing the Quad, which I think is very important with Australia, Japan, uh, and India. Um, uh, it worked uh, obviously on the economic front. We forget before the um, the, the pandemic uh, that began in Wuhan that we had been engaged in a two and a half year trade war, uh, and there are still tariffs on on Chinese goods. So it was a very um, comprehensive approach. Now it, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't uh, fully executed. It may not have been fully articulated. But I think if you sum it up in one uh, one word, it's reciprocity. Uh, and, and that's 
ultimately what Secretary of State Pompeo uh, and others began to, to openly express, but it was clearly a policy of reciprocity. And, and it came in two, uh, in two forms. One was structural reciprocity. That's where the trade war came in, which was to try to change structural relations between the US uh, and China. Uh, and, and I would probably put the influence and propaganda campaigns in there. And then there was also um, tactical reciprocity or situational or issue-oriented reciprocity. Things like, well, you're starting to cut down on the number of uh, reporters uh, in the U.S. that can be in, uh, in uh, China or, or not give them the ability to move around. So we're going to do the same uh, to, your, to your reporters. Um, reciprocity, it, you know, it, you have to expand the term a little bit, but I still think it's legitimate. Uh, reciprocity in the sense of um, uh, the Chinese uh, graduate students affiliated with the military who came here uh, to uh, get into research institutes and clearly take um, intellectual property. And so we began to, to restrict those numbers, um, restricting uh, or, or uh, threatening to defund or cut off government funding to schools that accepted Chinese money for Confucius Institutes because they wouldn't allow, um, they wouldn't allow American centers to be built. So it was a combination of, of structural uh, reciprocity and issue-oriented reciprocity, the, the ban on flights from uh, the U.S. to China. That was one where we slapped a ban on their flights and suddenly that was, that was resolved. So those were the types of reciprocity that the, um, that the Bush administration I'm sorry, the uh, Trump administration uh, adopted. The big question is, what does a Biden administration do? Yeah. Um, do they talk the talk, but not walk the walk? Do they keep up hard rhetoric, uh, but actually begin backing off on, for example, support for Taiwan or uh, um, not prosecuting um, espionage cases as much, or uh, maybe loosening the, the ability of Huawei to enter into our telecoms market again? I think we have to watch very carefully at what the uh, Biden administration does, regardless of its rhetoric, because again, you know, everyone who's going to be in the Biden administration was in the Obama administration. So we have a, we have a track record. We saw what they did. Um, we saw the rhetoric of what was called the rebalance or pivot to Asia, which I thought was was needed and was uh, was fully supportive of. Um, but the the reality of what changed under the reciprocity um, policy, I think, was much less. Than, than what the rhetoric promised. And so um, we'll see a lot of the same faces. And the question is, will they, will they go back to um, a, a policy that said a lot, did less, or was more focused on international institutions? Or will they continue um, a, a policy that is a little bit more bilateral or with you know, willing partners, uh, more bilateral in approach um, that really maintains this reciprocity and says all we're asking for is, an, is a level playing field. If you do that in a lot of these things, then, then we have no problems. But if you don't maintain a level playing field, then we've got problems. And, and then on the side of that, of course, you also have the security issues. Absolutely. So thank you for, thank you for your comments so far on China. Let's, uh, let's turn a little bit now to Japan, okay. uh, the, other, the other Asian giant. And sure. you, one of the chapters in your book that talks about Japan is, is Japan's Eightfold Fence. Uh, I remember reading that, uh, at least an adaptation of that, I guess, when it first came out in Political Magazine. And I was really impressed then, as I was to read the whole thing in the book now, because it's just rich in detail and in history. Um, and I found it really interesting how you discuss Japan's kind of unique brand of socialism, as you, and as you describe it in your words, quote, um, that Japan is of the world, but perhaps not fully in it. Um, and so... 
with that in mind, your chapter talks a lot about how Japan has balanced the positives and negatives of globalism. Uh, but if you were to say, come to America, you'll see two sides of the political spectrum that's, that see globalism as both kind of the, the shiny beacon on the hill for the future and, that, and the other side that detests it. But Japan seems to have, have found that, that happy medium. Uh, so could you shed some light on, on what, what that is, how your chapter kind of tackles that? Yeah, um, the Eightfold Fence is from an ancient Japanese poem that talked about how the gods created eight fences to protect Japan from the world. And in many ways, I think Japan has has consciously maintained those fences and um, done it in a way that has actually been, been largely beneficial. What I was really um, attempting to get at in, in, that, in that essay and in, in that chapter um, was, was how Japan has grappled with modernity. Um, so globalization, uh, as you were talking about, that's part of it. Um, that's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit more economic, although it, it can be social as well. Um, but it, but it's it's larger. I mean, it's it's questions of of political, um, you know, how you set up a political system. Certainly, um, how you open yourself up to the world or not. Uh, how you maintain certain barriers, and I think Japan has consciously done that, uh, and and done it because it privileges social stability over um, the sort of open individual, uh, sort of rampant individualization or individualism that we have in the West. That, of course, is not to say that Japanese are not individuals. They are, of course. Um, but in the sense of, 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 of privileging or prioritizing social stability and, and hierarchy of different kinds um, that, that feed into stability that we would consider very restrictive. And those can be you know, it, it, they can be restrictions, for example, on everything from uh, sort of, you know, how would you call it, you know, sort of Wild West capitalism and, and uh, Merkin, uh, not, you know, open markets and, uh, and um, uh, investment, you know, sort of the, the um, cap of, you know, vulture type of uh, capital venture approaches or, or M&A that buys companies and rips them apart and the, and the like. Japan doesn't do that um, for, for the most part, in bits and pieces, but it really doesn't do that. Um, all the way to restrictions on, on the idea of, of sort of, you know, the, the core of being an individual in Japan is that you're located within society. It used to be, you know, by law within a family. And now, of course, every Japanese is, is considered independent as, as, as we are and, and, and um, you know, a civil actor, but, but nonetheless still in many ways are expected uh, to to take on social roles, to embed themselves within um, particular uh, social groupings uh, and identify through those, as opposed to you know the sort of American backwoodsman and individual who's who's off doing you know doing his own thing traditionally. Um, and so you know the 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 grappling with modernity, um, in part, it's because you had a Japan that for seven hundred years. Uh, was rigidly divided into a caste system uh, with the samurai at the top and then the, uh, the farmers, then the merchants, and then the artisans, uh, the artisans and then the merchants at the bottom. Uh, and it was ruled by samurai for 700 years and, and some would say even longer because of course those who became um, uh, the leaders of early modern Japan were, were overwhelmingly from the samurai class. Um, but this modernity then forced it to, uh, to consider, okay, how after seven centuries, how do you reshape society? And, and what you don't do is suddenly say, okay, everyone's an individual and you can go and do 
whatever you want, however you want, wherever you want. Instead, there were still very strong expectations of, of your role uh, within a family, your role in, in, um, in a socioeconomic sense, your role in a political sense. And so what, you know, for a period, of course, in the 1970s and 80s and uh, in, in early 90s, we thought Japan was going to take over the world, um, at least economically. We, we should have known better, but that's, that's how we saw it. Um, and uh, we, we thought, you know, Japan is number one. We're going to learn from Japan. We're all going to change to be Japanese. And in the second that the Japanese bubble burst in uh, the late 1980s, uh, it was an asset and uh, property value bubble that burst, uh, leading to what has been essentially a generation of, of what we interpret as stagnation. We all lost interest in Japan. We thought, well, see, they're not modernized in the way that we are. They're not as open to the world. They're too rigid. They're too tied up with, with uh, you know, traditional Japanese ways of doing things. And yet, from a Japanese perspective, um, those last 30 years haven't been all that terrible. Of course, it wasn't the growth that you saw in the 1960s and 70s, but it's very hard. China doesn't have that growth anymore either. So let's you know see how we'll be talking about China in another 10 years. Um, but Japan, um, we thought we had nothing to learn from them. And we thought, in fact, what they had done is sort of come partway up to modernity and then, and then sort of been pulled back into this traditionalism. And yet from the Japanese perspective, uh, what they did was maintain a society that was extraordinarily cohesive, um, that has nothing like um, the um, the divisions or rifts that we do. Of course, no none of the riots. Of course, it's 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 remains extraordinarily homogenous ethnically uh, and religiously. Um, a society that has extremely low crime rates. Um, it has extremely high health rates. It has extremely high educational rates. And all of this has largely maintained, largely maintained over 30 years that we've ignored Japan and said, well, they're just, they're just stagnating. Um, Japan has lots of problems. Uh, the demographic problem is the biggest problem it faces. Um, it is shrinking in population now. Um, ironically, of course, in the short term, at least, that leads to growing GDP per capita because everyone you know, gets a larger slice of the economic pie, but it's not sustainable in the long run. Um, there is a problem with poverty in Japan. There is a problem, uh, of course, of gender equality, though they've made strides uh, over, the, over the past several decades to try to change that. Um, there are problems with, um, with uh, ethnic minorities. Uh, who are you know, a fraction of the population, but in Japan. And yet, for the most part, if you look at Japan, uh, away from our assessment of, of what makes for success, i.e. often a very reductionist monetary you know, economic assessment, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a very successful state and has remained so even during these, this generation of stagnation. Mm -hmm. And I think because it's maintained a lot of these consciously maintained a lot of these barriers against the world. Thank, thank you for that. Um, speaking of those barriers against the world, the other chapter in your book about Japan is China versus Japan, uh, entitled Asia's Other Great Game, which is, I think, pretty apt. So even though, even though Japan likes to remain, uh, as you say, not fully in the world, they have to deal with China. They're, the, the, these are the two regional rivals um, and they're, they're looking each other down all the time. So the previous, the former prime minister, excuse me, um, Abe, his political goal was obviously um, kind of pushing for a revision of Article 9 in the Japanese constitution that prohibits them from having a large standing military force. 
Um, but Abe, having resigned a few months ago, um, the current prime minister, Prime Minister Suga, has taken over. And it, from early analysis, it looks like perhaps his uh, major policy goals are not so much defense-oriented as, uh, as they are economic-oriented. Now, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. No, I'm re not reading all the right sources, but that, that's what I'm seeing. So what do you think? Do you think that's correct? Do you think that has uh, a major impact on the Chinese-Japanese relationship? What is that going to look like for the next few years while he's in office? Well, the, the Sino-Japanese relationship, of course, goes back millennia. Um, they are uh, the two main powers of Asia, uh, certainly of Eastern Asia. You have to put India in at, at Western Asia. Um, uh, they, they, at different periods in history, have competed to be the number one power in Asia. And, and usually you've had a weak China and a strong Japan or a strong China and a weak Japan. Now we have a case where both are really strong together. They both have weaknesses, but they're, they're strong at the same time. And so the past several decades have been very difficult for the Japanese and the Chinese to figure out uh, this relationship in, in what has always been seen by both of them as very hierarchical, uh, with the Japanese assuming, you know, since the, the uh, Meiji Restoration and, and the modernization of Japan, that you know they were the leader of Japan. Uh, I'm sorry, the leader of Asia, and that China was you know this sort of backwards country and would would be subordinate to Japan. And of course, for centuries and centuries before that, really China believing that if you know it was the hegemon of, of Asia and that all of Asia um, uh, basically you know radiated out from it in these concentric circles of of uh, decreasing civilization um, as as they would as they would um, articulate it or, or or conceptualize it. Um, uh, so more specifically in terms of the policies that you mentioned, um, yes, Prime Minister Abe, uh, who stepped down last month and was Japan's longest serving prime minister ever for eight years, um, focused um, on, on the economy, on what was called Abenomics, uh, also very much on the security, very much on bringing Japan back to a position of, of influence globally. And in, in a lot of ways, he succeeded. Um, he was always sort of chasing the Chinese shadow because of, of China's uh, continuing, continuing growing uh, influence and power around the world. But Abe made enormous strides with the Indians, with Southeast Asians, uh, with, with NATO, with, uh, with the US as well. Um, the Article 9, the pacifist uh, article in the Constitution, uh, he, he wanted to revise, but the, the truth is, is that he basically changed everything that was, you know, germane to it anyway. I mean, he changed all of the laws or interpretations of the laws that had restricted Japan after World War II from cooperating with other nations for collective self-defense or cooperating on defense, um, uh, defense industrial development, uh, selling uh, arms abroad, doing a lot of things that, um, uh, that, that had uh, be, been sort of taboo since 1945. And so he was very successful in that. Prime Minister Suga was Abe's right-hand man. And so I don't really see that there's much of a difference uh, between them. In fact, um, Suga just last week signed what was essentially a defense pact with Australia. What it, what it does is it allows the two militaries access to each other's bases. But it's a very important step because it, it will increase the ability of each to, um, to uh, cooperate um, to co-locate if, if necessary. Uh, I mean, that's a step down the line, but nonetheless, to allow them uh, to, uh, to basically build out this, this relationship that we hope will be encased within the quad, 
Um, uh, but that's something that Suga did. And, and so I think that he's not, you know, hasn't turned his back on security, but for any national leader, uh, as we know, economics is number one. And, and I think it is for, uh, it is for Suga. I mean, this has been a, a very difficult year uh, in the global economy. Um, the U.S. economy is, has uh, actually done a lot better than most world economies. Um, China, there are indications that it's come out of this, of course, because it ended its lockdowns much earlier. Uh, but Japan has struggled. And Japan, of course, never had to lock down, didn't have anything like the number of cases that uh, anywhere else uh, had. Probably the only nation really, the only you know, major economic nation better than Japan uh, was Taiwan. And so Japan actually did fairly well. Um, but, but, you know, the cratering of, of uh, exports and imports, you know, very difficult on the Japanese economy. And so Suga is going to be focused on that. Um, one of the things that uh, he's pushed, of course, once the Trump administration pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Abe had pushed a, a reformed Trans-Pacific Partnership. And Suga is continuing to do that. In fact, is hoping, and I, I think it would it'd be a good idea for the United States under the Biden administration to get back into the Trans-Pacific Partnership because um, uh, last month or, or a few weeks ago, China, Japan, Korea, India, basically every nation in Asia signed what was called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is not a full free trade agreement. It doesn't have the high environmental standards, doesn't have the high labor standards uh, or intellectual property protections as the TPP does, but it's very significant. And it's about a third of, of global GDP. If the United States gets back into TPP, uh, well, it has a slightly different name now, but we can call it TPP, that then is 40% of global output. So it'll be bigger than the RCEP. And I think that's important for us to be part of it as, as uh, was negotiated uh, under the Obama administration, but not ratified. So I think Suga is gonna continue with all of that. Uh, and if the quad is, is continued, and I hope it will be and continued and, and um, prioritized by a Biden administration, uh, then that will give Suga further uh, options to, to maintain Japan's security and sort of geopolitical cooperation with sig significant powers, India, the United States, and Australia. So we have about 20 minutes left, and we're getting quite a few questions coming in from uh, online attendees. But I want to ask one more question before we jump into some of, some of the public questions here, and that is about the final chapter of the book the chapter that I find uh, most concerning as a Naval officer myself. Uh, and this chapter is entitled The Sino-American Littoral War of 2025. Uh, you paint a pretty stark picture of US capabilities in the region to fight China and the conflict uh, in, in a few years. Uh, in this chapter, you highlight that um, any flashpoint with China will take place immediately in Beijing's backyard within the first island chain there, right? And something, something that you highlight is that that geography is very restrictive for, Amer for, for US sea lines of communication um, and whether we're fighting in the, in, in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, J Japan isn't necessarily that close when, when bullets start flying. And, and that is our forward staging area in the region. Uh, and with China's growing uh, A2AD capabilities, it doesn't look like we can put nearly as much pressure within that first island chain as we could several years ago. Uh, so, so these are all very concerning reasons for um, US uh, war planners. And 
what are what what do you think the U.S. can do to address any of these concerns in, um, before, say, 2025, since that's the chapter you give in the book, either at the operational or strategic levels? Well, so the, the chapter is a future history of a war that hasn't happened, uh, but it's drawn from the headlines. It's not like some of the scenarios you may have read where, you know, the Chinese decide to launch a sneak attack. It's that there's an accident, um, but the accident that happens in this case, both on the sea and in the air, um, is, is um, uh, uh, what's the word? I'm, I was going to say predicated. It's not the word, but anyway, it's preceded, preceded by um, a decade of worsening relations, which is where we are, right, from 2015 in this case to 2025, so that so that trust and working relations uh, and the like have been uh, severely degraded. And so that when these accidents happen, all of the accidents that I talk about, by the way, taken from headlines of what has already happened, but now put into a, you know, a, a fictional future, um, the two sides find themselves with an unwanted war, uh, but one that neither is willing to back down from because of this breakdown in relations. Um, for the U.S., of course, it's an away game, and it begins with the forces that you have in in region, you know, in theater. And so I go through, um, you know, as realistically as I could, looking at you know what we have forward based in Japan, uh, what can be brought from Hawaii, where there's very little that's based, but is you know a transit point. Um, what can be brought from the west coast of the United States. Uh, and how long that takes, which is weeks to get, you know, about three weeks steaming time from San Diego down to uh, to the Strait of Malacca. Uh, a lot of the action happens in um, in the South China Sea, some in the East China Sea. Uh, it it looks at how China tries to separate us from our allies and does that successfully in many ways. Um, it looks at the U.S. being able, in many cases, to operate how it wants up to a certain point uh, and then finds diminishing uh, freedom of action, either because of numbers uh, or because it has um, lost certain engagements and looking then at the, the types of capabilities that the Chinese have been building, missile swarm boats, advanced destroyers, uh, in addition to the, you know, the sexier things like stealth drones and, and stealth fighters and the like. Um, the, the role of cyber, uh, I actually think because this is an unanticipated unintended war, cyber is, is, um, is restricted. Uh, cyber war is restricted uh, because both sides know, the Chinese understand that if they go for a full cyber attack, that really breaks the, the it, what it does is, it, the, both sides are concerned with the escalation ladder. Uh, and of course, ultimately, neither side wants to get to a nuclear exchange. And so there's all these questions that go into that. How does cyber affect that calculation? How do uh, attacking civilian targets att uh, affect that calculation? Do you expand both vertically and horizontally uh, your military actions? So horizontally, meaning in a geographical sense, do you, do you attack mainland targets, uh, which could force the Chinese to retaliate on our mainland? Uh, vertically, again, you know, what... What do you take? In some ways, um, it, it's an older version of a war because it, it happens between planes and ships, but that's what we have there right away. And that's, and that's where both sides are attempting to make a, how would you put it, a, a, um, a limited knockout blow, meaning they want to win the conflict that is happening, but without expanding it. Uh, and so the, the, the problem for the United States, of course, is how do you maintain credibly enough forces that you could respond to these types of, 
of problems. I mean, this this is the issue: is that if you have your uh, if you have only one forward-based aircraft carrier in the region, and we know it can be targeted by uh, DF-26s or or uh, hypersonic missiles or other things that are that are coming out, um, and it's going to take you two weeks to get another aircraft carrier there. Okay, how do, how do you respond to that if you know that your um, uh, that your DDGs, your your destroyers, your guided missile destroyers, are at risk from these swarming missile boats, uh, which can unleash a, a volley of you know twenty four missiles uh, or or whatever it is. You know how do you maintain when you've only maybe got you know five or six of those at at when the hostilities start? Meaning the Chinese are looking for a knockout blow. So you you have to think about allies, but then you also have to think about maintaining. Uh, the security of your allies and keeping them on board. And what all of this ultimately comes down to is, is how the geopolitical map could change in Asia through a war. I mean, again, it's, it's, it's a, a future scenario, but it, it essentially looks at a war that the U.S. doesn't win, but it doesn't exactly lose either. And a China that appears to win in many ways, but then comes out at the other end realizing it has, in some ways, more problems than it had before. And so that's really the import of the, um, if, of the chapter is to think through all of this and uh, basically make the argument that you have to maintain as many credible, high-end, um, but not single-point failure forces uh, in theater so that, you're, that you can you can prosecute operations, meaning is, is the loss of an aircraft carrier a single point failure? Does that just end everything? Either we just say we're not going to take any more losses, or in some way it forces us to go way, way higher, right? And you know, you can imagine what some of those things would be. So that's really how that that chapter plays out. I tried to keep it as realistic as possible based on politics and based on things that have already happened. Uh, and and look again at at the, at the thing that we care about the most, which is at the end of the day, what is the geopolitical environment? And I think from the from the the scenario, it's very clear what it is. I know for for me, I've shared this this chapter with a lot of my colleagues, um, just because it is it, it's it, you don't read many future histories like this, especially one with such a sober outcome that puts U.S. power kind of at a at a diminished perspective to its adversary that is fighting. Uh, so I really thank you for for authoring that and taking a, what you, you find to be a realistic look at the subject. Um, so let's turn now to some of the questions we've gotten from the audience. Um, and a couple of them have been curious about Sino relations with the Quad outside of Japan. So both Australia and India. What uh, what do you see the future being like there, especially especially perhaps maybe with Australia where we've seen a lot of tension between Beijing and Canberra recently. Well, right now, um, Beijing's relations with Tokyo are better than its relations with either New Delhi or Canberra, as, as you note, with Australia, um, because Australia was one of the first nations to call for an inquiry into the, the Wuhan COVID outbreak, um, as well as over the past several years, take very stringent steps uh, to reduce Chinese money and influence in its, in its political system. Uh, also to um, to push back against its influence campaigns, uh, Beijing's basically basically launched a trade war against uh, against Australia. It has uh, slapped tariffs on its um, on its goods. It has banned the import of beef and lobsters and and other uh, products. And of course, China uh, is Australia's largest um, its largest trading partner. 
Um, what we need, by the way, in response to this is something that the, the State Department, the Trump administration has floated, which is the idea of an economic Article 5. You know, Article 5 in defense treaties are the ones that call for um, all nations to come to the aid of, of, a, of a nation being attacked. And um, the uh, Assistant Secretary of State, Dave Stilwell, and others have, have floated the idea of, a, um, of an economic Article 5 so that we would step in and say, fine, China's no longer buying your lobsters and your beef, we're going to buy them. So you're not going to take an economic hit. But right now, this is, this is a, uh, a very strong attack uh, on, on trade between uh, Australia and China undertaken by the Chinese. Uh, and we have to stand up to our, our uh, Australian, uh, stand up for our Australian allies. They are one of our best allies globally, and we need to be supporting them and figuring out how we can help them during this. That's, that's, um, that's Australia. In terms of India, um, the two are in a locked in a continuing uh, border spat that turned into a battle a few months ago in which at least 20 Indian soldiers and an unknown number of Chinese soldiers lost their lives. This is up in the Himalayas uh, along the Bhutanese border and a few other areas. This, these derive from 19th century border lines that were drawn or enclaves. It, it, it's, it's very, you know, old, old world in a sense, but you have um, both India and China very, um, uh, rigidly attempting to maintain and defend uh, geostrategic locations uh, in, in this border area between them. Don't forget they fought a war in 1962, uh, a major border war. So uh, relations uh, with those two nations are terrible. Relations with Japan right now are, are sort of quiet uh, with Suga coming in. And um, uh, I think it was Wang Yi, the, the um, uh, state counselor just went to um, uh, what just went to Japan and Korea. I, I, I'm just blanking on who it was. I'm pretty sure it was him anyway. Uh, high ranking diplomat, um, highest level went to, um, uh, went to Japan. Um, so right now it's, it's, it's fairly you know, quiet, but, but that doesn't mean by any means that these, uh, these tensions between uh, Tokyo and, and Beijing have been resolved. Um, there's the pressure of the one belt, one road uh, that India doesn't like, uh, Japan doesn't like. Um, they're, you know, they're trying to find ways around it. Japan, of course, still has the uh, Asian uh, Development Bank, which is in many ways more successful than the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Japan's ODA, Overseas Development, is actually more successful in many ways than, uh, than the Belt and Road in terms of uh, what's been given and the projects that have been completed. So this is an ongoing competition. In fact, it's the competition that you mentioned, you referred to as one of the chapters in the book, The Great Game. And, and this, this is played out politically, but it's played out economically. And with the Quad, in a way, it's being played out geopolitically or, or geostrategically. So we have about five minutes left. So we're going to take one more question. Mm -hmm. uh, and this one's going back to, to China because we can't get out of that gravity well, of course. So looking at kind of the democratic protests in Hong Kong recently, um, one, one attendee is curious, what is, what is a solution either in Hong Kong or more broadly in China to bring about those democratic forces? I know you've talked a lot about that harder authoritarianism we've seen under, um, under Xi's uh, leadership, but is there a solution for for pro democratic forces both in Hong Kong and in China proper? Well, in China proper, in the mainland, I think it's very, very unlikely. It's very grim. Uh, you know, they, the the party under Xi over the past ten years has uh, worked very hard. She's been in power since 2012, but this started a little bit before he came into power uh, to reduce the sphere of civil society. 
um, you know, looking for Chinese reformers or at least reformers who, you know, who have any significance or, or certainly political positions like waiting for Godot. They just, they never show up. Um, and, and there's really little um, uh, organized um, you know, democratic movements that we can look at. Hong Kong, what we've witnessed over the past months is the tragic destruction of Hong Kong's democracy and, and, and freedoms. Um, it's happened it, it, and, it's, and it's done and we have to accept that. Hong Kong is, is no longer uh, the free city that that it was just at the beginning of this year. I mean that that space has been being squeezed uh, has been squeezed for a number of years now. But with the passage of the national security law and and its and its implementation, Hong Kong is no longer a free uh, free city, a, a free territory. Um, what we need to do is think a little bit as we did during the Cold War, or during the Nazi occupation of Europe, of recreating. A free Hong Kong outside of Hong Kong, meaning we have to figure out a way to recreate Hong Kong civil society outside of Hong Kong, so that its writers, its thinkers, its its religious leaders, its its educators, um, its politicians, of course, uh, its students all all have a place to to go. And I think the British have been talking about a lot of different ways, in, in, including uh, immediate citizenship and and visas and the like. We should be helping with that. I think the Brits should be doing a lot, of course, because this, you know, this was their colony and this was the agreement that Beijing signed with London. Uh, and, and a lot of this is now coming out. Um, the, the real question of putting sanctions on both entities and individuals in China who are directly responsible for um, squelching uh, the freedoms there and, 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 and making arrests. Um, I think we have to think about that. We have to think uh, also about how you and I think businesses certainly should be thinking about relocating from Hong Kong. You so you can't believe that you're safe anymore. Uh, and so where do you relocate to? Um, Singapore is makes great sense. Tokyo makes great sense. They have rule of law and they're safe. Um, these are there are a lot of options where we should be thinking uh, about how you essentially uh, selectively or, or strategically decouple from China. You decouple both because you want to reduce your vulnerabilities, supply chain vulnerabilities and the like that we learned about during the COVID crisis, but also because it's morally uh, the, the right thing to do. You need to reduce the interaction with a China that's becoming less free, more oppressive, more predatory, more authoritarian. Um, Japan started a billion dollar fund to help businesses uh, offshore from China, either back to Japan or to other places in Southeast Asia. And I think that's what we, we should be thinking about for U.S. Uh, manufacturers that are there. Um, the former CEO of Foxconn, which produces all of the Apple products, uh, the iPhone and the like, uh, before he stepped down a year or so ago, talked about uh, reshoring or onshoring to Taiwan all of the production that's inside of China. That's the type of stuff we need to be thinking about because it's both economically important, it's also morally and politically important. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your, your thoughts and comments today and thank you to the audience for attending. I think this has been really eye-opening and I hope everyone that attended is willing to go out and grab a copy of this book because there's a lot more in there than just what we've talked about um, and I would encourage them to read it. So thank you very thank much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.